0: chapter 2. This morning we're going to read about the first public miracle performed by Jesus. It's the wedding feast in the little town of Cana. Get your Bibles out because we're going to move around just a little bit and you'll always keep your finger there in the Gospel of John chapter 2. But I want you to focus on three important things this morning. The first is I want you to focus on the belief and the faith of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And then I I want you just as much to focus on the obedience of the servants that are caught in the middle of this catastrophe. And then, as always, we want to focus on the compassion of Jesus. We'll experience the impossible with these wedding guests. This miracle is happening before their very eyes. And even more than that, each and every one who lifted the wine cup to their lips literally tasted that the, that the goodness of the Lord is there with them. And that's the first thing I have on your list of things to, to be thinking about. David, in Psalm 34, verse 8, he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in Him. Well, let's begin this morning with the first words of John chapter 2, on the third day. I couldn't read that and not wonder, well, it's three days later, uh, three days from when? And so I went back to the very first sentence of the book thinking that God would tell me, but here John only says, in the beginning. Time seems to be of no importance to John until the human characters in his gospel come on the scene. Then sometime along this timeline, after the beginning, obviously, John the Baptist shows up. The witness of John the Baptist starts a chain reaction as Jesus is first followed by Andrew and his unnamed buddy, two former disciples of the baptizer. The adventure begins. By my count, we're now about four days into the timeline of John's gospel. And by the end of chapter one, we're able to count at least five disciples. We have Andrew. And most Bible scholars think Andrew's unnamed buddy is John himself, the writer of the gospel. And then there's Simon, Philip, and Nathaniel. These are the five that follow Jesus on the road to Galilee. This brings me back to chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day. This is most likely seven days after Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. You see, John was baptizing about 60 miles south of Cana, near the little village of Bethabara, also called Bethany. And the last part of verse 1, there was a wedding in Cana, Of Galilee. Well, now we know why John mentions in chapter 1, verse 43. Remember that verse? Jesus, it says, the following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. He didn't want to be late to the wedding up north where he had been invited. He must not have been on Calvary Chapel time, but we won't get into that. You see, wedding feasts in the first century lasted a whole week now i've actually paid for one wedding and it was mega expensive just to cater one meal imagine throwing a party for five six or seven days the last part of verse one says and the mother of jesus was there now both jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding now We kind of have to set the stage at this point for the rest of the story. Cana is about eight miles northeast from Mary's home in Nazareth as you hike toward the Sea of Galilee. Mary has been invited to this wedding feast, so we can either assume that these are her relatives or the mother of the bride or groom is a very close, lifelong friend. Jesus is also invited to the wedding, probably because... He was still regarded as part of Mary's family. Verse 3. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now the party's in its fifth or sixth day. Mary may have been helping. Or perhaps she was sitting next to the host family when this was discovered. Even the master of the feast hasn't been notified. Her relationship to this wedding family is close enough that Mary feels some responsibility to act on their behalf. She shares their shame and embarrassment when this terrible social blunder takes place. It's the worst thing that can happen at a wedding feast. So, she turns to Jesus with this troubling news. Now, stop right there for just a moment and and think about that. Mary knows, doesn't she? She knows the person and the powers of Jesus. Mary is aware of Jesus' ability to intervene. Now, we don't directly know how she knows or what degree that she knows, but it can reasonably be inferred from what we read in the gospel, that Mary is asking Jesus for a miracle. I think Mary has known for the past 30 years that something like this miracle could happen. It may have been just a feeling she's entertained, a thought in the back of her mind, but she has known. Since the day the announcements were made by the angels, well, as well as probably a few curious, peculiar incidents that cropped up through the years as Jesus was growing up. Was Jesus a child magician extraordinaire with Mary smiling coyly in the background? Well, I don't think so. I don't think Mary has previously experienced any miracles done by her son. She just knows. Well, let's look at how Mary knows. Keep your finger there and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Let's look at what the angel Gabriel Mary in Luke 1. I'll start with verse 31. And behold, he says, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Mary then goes to the house of her of her relative Elizabeth, who says to her in verse 30, 43, Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Well, Mary's response to that is to sing a song to the Lord about this pregnancy. We see that in verse 46 of this chapter. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. Mary knows of this universal importance. Just before Mary's pregnancy, uh, Begins to show the angel comes to Joseph and reveals this event. And so Joseph has some sense now of God's plan. So Mary, Elizabeth, Joseph, all three have received the message. Jesus is special. He's sent from God. But much more than that, when you look carefully at what the angel told Mary, this baby that's about to be born is God. God in the flesh. Let's go back and look more carefully at what the Gabriel said to, to Mary. Back, I'm going to look at verse 32 of, of Luke 1. The baby will be God's son. See what it says? The son of the highest. He will be a king. It says, And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And last it says, that he will be eternal. And he will, in verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there shall be no end. Mary knew right then who this baby is to be. Son of God, king of Israel, eternal king of the universe. Elizabeth recognizes who this unborn baby is. Remember she said, the mother of my Lord has come to me. Then Joseph is given, and he's like most men. He has some idea of what this message is about. On top of all this, remember the story of Jesus and his birth in Bethlehem? Angel choirs and worshiping shepherds and wise men, kings from the east, bringing gifts, expensive gifts. Then Luke tells us one thing, one short story about Jesus' childhood. Let's go forward one chapter there in Luke. Chapter 2, verse 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the Feast. The family now... They're on the journey home, back to Nazareth, thinking Jesus was with some member of the family. And they're a day's journey when they realize that Jesus is missing. Joseph and Mary rush back to Jerusalem to look for Jesus. We read in verse 46. Now it was that after three days, can I add of frantic searching, (laughs) they found him. In the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Now, parents, have you ever been in a situation like this where you wanted to thump them and hug them both at the same time? Simultaneously frightened and relieved? Well, that's parenthood for you. And isn't it wonderful when we have grandkids? They're like payback. Don't you love it, grandparents? Well, let's move on here. So in Luke 2.48, it says this. His mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Now, he had the attitude of a 12-year-old, but he had the knowledge of someone even greater. What? the big deal anybody have a 12 year old at home you know what I'm talking about but look at verse 50 they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them you see life goes on and we get in this rut where all of the miracles of the birth kind of go into the background don't they They know that Jesus belongs to God, but they don't fully understand what it means. And this verse tells me that Jesus didn't play the part of some superhuman child hiding his powers behind closed doors at home. As parents, they know, yet they don't know. For all means and purposes, Jesus was a normal yet sinless child. Well, that's really not too normal, but he was a normal kid. Verse 51 says this, Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. My mother has said that to Lee and I at times. Oh, I remember when this happened and I just kept it in my heart. This normal child was subject to his parents, but Mary, like normal mothers do, kept all these things in her heart. She mulled over them for years. And for some reason, here at this wedding, in this little village of Cana, Mary's understanding starts coming together. The angel Gabriel's words are ringing in her mind and heart. So we're back in chapter 2 of John. Mary approaches Jesus. I think Mary knows exactly what she is asking as she approaches him about the wine. So let me repeat verse 3. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. She's saying, my son, please help these dear friends and relatives of ours. Only you can do it. She may have reminded him of how poor these loved ones are. She's going, yes, maybe they invited more friends to the wedding than they could afford. And now the wine has run out. And Jesus knows what his mother is asking of him. But he approaches it kind of interesting, in an interesting way. Jesus, in verse 4, says to her, Woman, I've never called my mother woman. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? You know, God may ask you the right question because he wants to know if you know the right answer. Well, now, he replies, woman, it's an impersonal title, neutral at best, even somewhat detached. And I think Jesus is making a point. This is my next thought on your list. The time had come for Jesus to begin to redefine his relationship with Mary. He's letting his mom know that the eternal plan of God won't cater to the maternal needs of Mary. An author, Mary Zoba, writes of Jesus' treatment here of Mary, and she says it pretty plainly. She asks this, Why at the wedding did Jesus push his mother away? Why couldn't he call her mom in front of this throng? A mother needs to know these things, but then... She says, a mother, even Jesus' mother, needs to know the Savior more. And how else could she have found her Savior without first losing him as her son? For three decades, Mary has basically had Jesus to herself. We're not sure when Joseph dies, but he's not in the picture at this point. Jesus has always belonged to God and to God's will. It was time to let him go. Their relationship has to change. Jesus is about to go from son to savior. And just as it is for each of us, he has to become Mary's Lord. Then Jesus says something Very revealing. He says in the last part of verse 4, My hour has not yet come. This is how we know that Jesus has not yet been performing any miracles in public. His hour hasn't yet come. This is the first indication, the first sign from the Father that Jesus is to reveal himself. Now, whenever you and I come to a fork in the road, a a time that we need to make a change, we begin thinking, oh boy, is this the event that God's brought about to show me something new? Change is hard, isn't it? I, I don't know how Jesus decided that this wedding catastrophe should mark the beginning of his public ministry, but he did. He must have given her a look that mother look, not a bewildered look, but a mother look, because she's able to turn from him, and verse 5, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. This is the sentence in the whole story that I want each and every one of us to focus on. Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. Mary intervenes with Jesus on the behalf of her friends. And how does she intervene? Mary is directing the servants to her son rather than acting as a mediator or a liaison for him. You ask Mary to intercede for you with her son, and she'll tell us all to just look to Jesus and obey him. And whatever Jesus says to you, what? Do it. We're all servants, just like these men and women were, who were told what to do next. Now, I want you to do something this morning. We're outside. It's a beautiful morning. You even... Some of you put a little jacket on. I mean, how good can it be? So I want you to use your imagination a little bit. And here's what I want you to do. I, I want you to put yourselves in the shoes of these servants this morning. You're one of these servants. They've run out of wine. There are people uh in the other room, and you're looking at these empty wine vessels and you're hearing the murmuring and talking and laughing in the other room and you look over at the wine merchant who's giving you the old what can i do gesture the pots are empty if you're in their shoes what will you do Will you do what Jesus says? Isn't it true for each of us that when we are all in this kind of a predicament, one where we have no idea how the Lord is going to respond on our behalf, we're left with whatever Jesus says to you, do it. And, are you ready? Most of the time there's no safety net. Don't just read the story with with me this morning and pretend it's just a parable or a folk tale to teach us an important idea, even though the Lord does want each of us to learn from it this morning. This really happened to these scared, bewildered servants, and they weren't even Mary's servants. In fact, the people putting on the wedding feast were too poor to purchase enough wine, so these servants were probably strangers to them too. I started thinking, maybe they were servants of the wine merchant. And Jesus, well, he's just another guest at the wedding. So verse 6 comes. Now there, were, now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Whoa. That's a lot of gallons. That's a lot to fill up. You can think for a long time while you're filling that up. These water pots were used throughout the week for water to wash the hands and, and feet of the visitors and guests. They were used in ceremonial cleansing at a at a religious wedding. And the water was used throughout the feast to cleanse the guest's hands and between different courses of food. And we're approaching the end of the feast. Remember, it it can be... Uh, for a week so most of the uh, water pots are empty so jesus said to them verse 7 fill the water pots with water and so they filled them up to the brim now again don't just read this like it's just a moral story remember we you and me are going to do whatever whatever jesus tells us to do in this wedding You and I know perfectly well what's going on here. These poor fools have run out of wine. This stranger, he's telling us to fill the water pots with water. Why? What's he going to do? More important, what's he going to tell us to do? I'm thinking, aren't you? This job doesn't pay me enough to take water out to these people and pour it into their wine cups. I'd I'd be the laughing stock. I'd be the object of ridicule. Not me. Verse eight. And he said to them, "Now draw some out, and take it to the master of the feast." Now, are you still with me here? What are you going to do? Well, first, when he's not looking, I'm going to dip my finger in there and taste it. All right. Has the miracle happened yet? That's my question. Has the water turned to wine? I was taught that the water didn't turn to wine until the first person began to drink it, at least not until the servant poured it in the first wine cup. Now think of the stress and strain that would put on us as servants. Someone recently told me, She said this, I think the water turned to wine the instant it entered the guy's mouth. He had to drink it first. Doesn't the book of Psalms say, taste and see that the Lord is good? Well, that's good reasoning. I can't really argue too much with that because I quoted David in the thirty. For Psalm, as we began this morning, but think of the distress our servants are feeling until we see the first smile and nod of approval. And then she, and then John tells us in the last part of verse eight, and they took it. That's us. We're the servants. I'm looking in the pitcher as I carry it to the guests. I'm looking at the liquid. Try to look through the liquid at the sun to see as it pours into the wine glass and I'm worrying as they lift it to their lips will it or won't it is it or isn't it has the water turned to wine yet now it's true that this miracle could be the result of jesus' compassion to meet the needs of this bride and groom and their families that's what jesus does every day for us cast all your cares on him why because he cares for you that's his promise it's also true that we are like these servants each of us is to make jesus lord of our lives and serve him faithfully Just as Mary said to us servants, whatever he says to you, do it. That's our mandate today. We're like water pots even. Pitchers, we're like pitchers holding the water of God's word. Serving the water, the good news to those people in need. That's how God works in this world. You're the servant. The water could turn to wine as you pour it. Well, after all of this, I began to ask myself a simple question. And that question is this. Who was praying for this miracle to happen? I believe it's her faith that Jesus is responding to. Remember the story Mark tells us about the paralyzed man carried to the rooftop by his friends? And when Jesus looked up through the hole that they made in the roof, he couldn't see very well because all of the stuff floating down. He looked up at the four men who lowered their friend at his feet. You all remember that story. Let me quote it, what Jesus said in verse 5 of Mark 2. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, Your sins are forgiven you. And later, take up your bed and walk. He was responding to faith. Here at the wedding, when Jesus saw Mary's faith, I think that's all it took. I believe it was when we servants obeyed Jesus and poured the water into those large water pots, that's when the water was turned into wine. Easy peasy, no sweat. There it is. Real wine. I'm a servant and I can smell the aroma. I can smell the bouquet, the wide array of earthly fruit and floral, woodsy flavors. Also, remember, I tasted it when I poked my finger in the, in the water pot. Now, I'm strutting out of the kitchen Carrying my servers, pitchers, smiling and whistling a wedding song. Verse 9. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Now this guy gets the first taste. He's the boss, the one in charge. He's like the master of ceremonies. Usually he's there... to make sure the celebration moves smoothly and all of the ceremonial activities take place. Verse 10, And he said to him, that's the bridegroom he's talking to, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. This master of the feast, he's surprised. He's, he's astounded. He says, You kept the best till last. And you and I were pleasantly relieved. He was intrigued that the bridegroom had saved the best wine till last. It's obvious that what Jesus miraculously created in the pots was real wine and the best of the lot. Water into wine. What does that mean? Well, my friend Sandy Adams says this. He says, the truth is Jesus turned real water into real wine, and he's still busy turning water into wine. Jesus can take the mundane, boring, drab duties of life and suddenly make them sweet and intoxicating. So Sandy asks, this, has your life been infected with boredom and drabness? Jesus can lift us out of the rut and turn our lives into an adventure. He replaces the blahs with supernatural bubbly. He finishes by saying, Jesus can restore the sparkle and flavor to life. He can do that for you, and he does that for me. Verse 11. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana Of Galilee and manifested or revealed his glory. I think it's significant, and many of you will too, that the first miracle occurred at a wedding. Every marriage needs a miracle from time to time, doesn't it? And over the years, Jesus has proven nothing's changed. He still likes to work miracles in marriages. And John tells us the last part of verse 11, and his disciples believed in him. Well, this is the first miracle of miracle that they've seen. This initial faith will, faith will be tested and developed day by day by a progressive relation with Jesus and a progressive revelation as they follow him. At this point, they certainly didn't understand everything. They didn't understand about his death or his resurrection. But I I know one thing for certain. for certain. Today, they know his power. Tyler, come on up and give me a minute here to finish. Verse 12, let me close. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples... And they did not stay there many days. At first, it might seem here in verse 12 that life returns back to normal. But 2,000 years later, we can testify that from this day on, the world will never be the same. So I hope you've focused on these three important things this morning. The belief and faith of Mary. She believed. She had that choice. The obedience of the servants, that's our choice as well. We obey him. We do what he says to do. And then all of us need to recognize the compassion of Jesus. We cast our cares on him because he cares for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we sing this last song, we worship you. You are God, very God. You love us. We don't deserve it. But you love us without measure. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.